0: Luke covers the teaching of Jesus' final week in just two chapters, chapter 20 and chapter 21. After his triumphal entry as we talked about Sunday, we've been jumping around a bit to to make some things fit just in our own scheduling here. But uh, chapters 20 and 21 are Luke's accounting of the teachings of Jesus. It's definitely not all the teachings of Jesus in that final week, but it gives us a real clear picture of what was going on of how Jesus was functioning there in Jerusalem in the last week prior to his crucifixion. So Luke 20 and 21 deal with that. Luke 21 is that all of it discourse. Now parallel passage is Matthew 24, Mark 13. And we're going to actually skip over most of that tonight and come back to it on Sunday morning and spend some time there. And tonight we're going to just continue on with this at the end of the week. In verse 37 of Luke 21, if you'll turn there, Luke 21, verse 37, it says, Now during the day he was teaching in the temple. But at evening he would go out and spend the night on the Mount of Olives, or the Mount that is called Olivet. And all the people would get up early in the morning to come to him in the temple to listen to him. And that was the routine. That was the routine of Jesus during that last week. During the day, teaching in the temple, at night, heading across the Cadron and up onto the Mount of Olives. And we don't know if it was sleeping out, camping out under the stars on the Mount of Olives, or perhaps it was going over the top of the Mount of Olives to Bethany, Lazarus and Mary and Martha's home, which was on the Mount of Olives, it was just on the eastern slopes. But in essence, what we see in Jesus in this last week of His ministry is, well, the plain pattern of all of His ministry. Teaching through the day, ministering to people through the day, and then in the night out under the stars, resting. He was a homeless man. But here in Jerusalem, things... More different than they are in the Galilee than they were in the Galilee. The Galilee, and even today, if you go to Israel, you see the Galilee is such a quiet and restful and peaceful place, and Jerusalem is just the opposite. It's just intense, busy, and there's just kind of an, a constant—I don't know—almost all, all, like a power there. But there's an intensity about the city of Jerusalem and certainly there was during this Passover season for Jesus. He goes there. Josephus among others tell us that there were upwards of perhaps 2 million Jews in the city at the time. So it was just full of people packed out for the Passover. And so Jesus would be in and among the people through the day teaching again there in the temple but then heading out in the evenings where where He took His rest. Where Jesus was concerned, for all the people in Jerusalem, there were really just two types. There were the early risers and there were the
1: scrutinizers.
0: (laughs) The scrutinizers were looking for flaws. And during this last week of Jesus, didn't even realize what they were doing, but it's perfect. They were inspecting the Paschal lamb. As was required of the Jewish family to inspect the lamb during the final week, they would take a lamb into the home. Look at it carefully, observe it, be sure that it was without blemish, without spot, and then they could bring that to offer it up at the Passover. Well, Jesus in the same way is under the intense scrutiny of the religious leaders. They are trying, as we've already seen, trying to pick apart His teaching, trying to find flaws, looking for errors, and they can't find any. And He just keeps turning it around on them. And as we talked about last week, He's not playing games. He's turning it around on them because He wants them to know who He is. He's giving them every opportunity to understand. But they're not seeing it. They've got Him under the microscope of religion and politics, searching for errors, but Jesus, Jesus was flawless. The spotless Paschal Lamb for the festival sacrifice. As Psalm 118.27 read, the Lord is God. And He has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. And so that would happen with Jesus. He would become that festival sacrifice. That was the scrutinizers. The early risers, on the other hand, I love what it says about them. They came looking for Jesus. The early risers. They came to the temple. They didn't come to inspect Jesus. They didn't come to trip Him up. They just came to listen. It's the best way to approach Jesus. Even for the critic, I would say, come to church and just listen. Don't try to pick Him apart. Just listen to what He says. See what it does to your heart. Listen to Him. The Jews called it the Shema. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, Shema. O Israel, The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And so the people got up early in the morning to come to Him in the temple to listen to Him. Do you do that? Do you get up early in the morning to listen to Jesus? Now I don't know about your temple, but my temple tends to be most quiet early in the morning. My temples tend to be less busy when I first start to wake up than they do at any other time in the day you know early in the morning the world is still trying to wake up the pace is yet to quicken and the Pharisees don't even start calling till around 10 I, I could just see someone going you know they call Rick oh I got to wait an hour I want to be one of those Pharisees back in Isaiah chapter 50. Jesus said, Isaiah 50, verse 4, The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. The Lord has opened my ear, and I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. Now, Rick, you said Jesus said that? How do you know Jesus said that? Because the next verse tells us, I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting, for the Lord God helps me, therefore I am not disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know I will not be ashamed. Those two verses, those four verses together, two and then two, are very interesting to me. Because the song, the servant song in Isaiah 50 starts out, I awaken in, in the morning as a disciple. I awaken listening. I awaken paying attention. And then goes directly into the brutality of being struck, of having his beard plucked out, of being beaten, of being humiliated and spat upon. And I think, you know, that's the way you do it. The best way to prepare for the worst day is to come to Jesus early in the morning. To start out with Him. To listen to Him. Well, how do you know it's going to be your worst day? You don't. So you might as well do it every morning. Come to Him early. Start the day with Him. Meet Him in the temple of your mind, in the temple of your heart. And just listen to what Jesus has to say. Well, how do I do that? Rick? Well, just open a Gospel. Pick one. And just meet Him there every morning. And when you're finished with that, go to another one when you finish with that, find another book. When you're done there, just sit and listen. But meet Jesus in the morning. And I believe it will change all of our lives. That quiet time of listening. Now verse 1 of chapter 22 begins, Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put Him to death. For they were afraid of the people. You see, they couldn't do it out in the open. There were too many people who loved Jesus. Too many who were showing up, showing up for early morning devotions. They wanted to hear from this, this rabbi. They were impressed by him. They loved him. They were hanging, the Bible tells us, on every word. And so they couldn't do anything. He was untouchable in public. So they were trying to figure out a way to get him when no one was watching. Verse 3, And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot. That's from the town of it, from, uh, the town of Cariot. Cariot was to the south, as opposed to most of the rest of the apostles were north in the Galilee region. But Judas came from the south. Uh, history tells us Cariot was a well-off city, a rich city, a city of bankers and people who knew finances. And of course, they gave the finances to Judas. He would take care of the money bag during the ministry of Jesus. John tells us that. Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. And he went away and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. They were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and began seeking a good opportunity to betray him to them apart from the crowd. you know the money they gave him was 30 pieces of silver, just as Zechariah prophesied, Zechariah 11 verses 11 and 12, that he'd be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. That was the amount paid out for the betrayal of Jesus. Now it's interesting to me that Luke here tells us that at that time that Satan had entered into Judas. that's not what John says. John tells us in John 13.27 during the Passover meal after he had taken a morsel from Jesus Satan then entered into him therefore Jesus said to him what you do, do quickly and Satan goes out or (laughs) Judas and Satan together they go out so was it that Satan entered him during Passover? or did Satan enter him earlier in the day or perhaps earlier in the week? and I think the answer is both I think Satan was coming and going. I think Judas was tormented to a degree. And I'm not saying that with compassion for Judas. Because the reality is, the luring influence of Satan on the life of Judas was a long time in play. And Judas was the instrument of betrayal. He was the instrument of betrayal. Matthew Henry says, Whoever betrays Christ or his truths or ways, it is Satan that puts them upon it. It's a work of Satan. That is, that is frontline warfare as far as Satan's concerned. If there's someone who can betray the cause of Christ, that's a person worth going after. But make no mistake where Judas is concerned, he chose this. He chose it. For all the modern theology that says you know, Judas was doing other things, he was just misunderstood. That was the problem. Or, or perhaps Judas was really just trying to force Jesus' hand so that he would finally express himself as the king. Some actually think that, that. That Judas looked at Jesus and said, I know he's got the power and he's the king, so if I betray him, it'll all come out and he'll be able to take his throne and maybe that's the role that I'm supposed to suffer. That's not anywhere in the Bible. It's a bogus understanding. Judas had been walking in quiet betrayal for a long, long time. By his own choice. John chapter 12, verse 6 says he was a thief, and as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. That was an ongoing issue. And I point this out to say, and I know there are those who disagree with me on this, but I think we have gotten way too loose with the term disease. In our culture, sin is like a disease in that it infects us, in that it is progressive, but it always begins with a choice. It always begins with a choice. There's always the first drink, there's always the first toke. There is always the first lie. There's always the first theft. There is always something we choose to do. And it leads us down that road, progressing, yes, like an infection, and finally, it overruns choice completely. But don't be deceived. We have the right to choose whether or not we're going to sin. And Judas made the choice of betrayal. He was betraying Jesus throughout the ministry. Every time he stole, it was a betrayal. James chapter one verse fourteen tells us each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Paul says in Romans six twelve, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. Modern day translation: Just don't go there. Don't let sin become the instrument of your life. Paul goes on and says, Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members, he's talking about even your physical body, as instruments of righteousness to God. Don't hand your body over to sin, be it your eyes in what you watch or your hands in what you do or your mind in what you think, or your feet in where you go, don't hand yourself over. Don't make that choice. That's what Judas did. He made the choice to betray. And so he became the instrument of betrayal. Verse 7 going on says, Then came the first day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us so that we may eat it. They said to him, where do you want us to prepare it? And he said, when you've entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water, follow him into the house that he enters, and you shall say to the owner of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large furnished upper room, prepare it there. And they left and found everything just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Have you found everything just as Jesus has told you? In your life? Is everything the way He told you it was going to be? Or are you even sure? Understand that for every hope left hanging, for every promise unfulfilled, we can be sure of this. He will do exactly what He said He would do. He will do what He has told us. Numbers 23, 19, Has He said and will He not do it? Or has He spoken and will He not make it good? Isaiah 25, verse 1, O Lord, You are my God. I will exalt You. I will give thanks to Your name for You have worked wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. If God says it, He's going to do it. Well, what if He's not doing it? Maybe He didn't say it. We love to put words in God's mouth. Well, I know the Lord told me to do this. And it's just not working out. Maybe He didn't tell you in the first place. Because I guarantee you, if it's of the Lord, He's going to make it happen. If it is of the Lord, it will come about. It may not come about on your calendar may not be this year or next year or ten years from now, but if the Lord's told you, He's going to make it happen. And if it doesn't happen, it wasn't from the Lord. It's pretty simple. I work that way. (laughs) Jesus here had obviously planned ahead for the Passover. When He sent Peter and John on into, into the city, He knew what He was doing. He knew He'd already made arrangements. He'd already set things up. But the main thing to note about this is it's interesting, these were covert operations. This was stealthy, obviously secretive. Follow the man with the pitcher. He's the guy. Now that's unusual. When we were studying Mark, we talked about this. The women typically carried the pitchers of water. It's not a sexist thing, it's just a cultural thing. The women carried the pitchers of water. The men, where there was water to be carried, would carry the big heavy skins of water. You know, the skin's for watering the flocks and the herds, but the women were the water carriers of the pitchers in the homes. And so typically in Jerusalem, in the city, you'd see the women with the pitchers of water. All of a sudden, here goes a man. Well, that's weird. That's a little different. That's a sign, Jesus said. When you see that, you follow Him. And tell Him, Jesus says, the rabbi says. Which rabbi? You know how many rabbis were in Jerusalem at that time? But it was code. I'm convinced. The rabbi says we're in need of the room. Oh, oh, okay. And the man's knowing who the rabbi is. The whole thing is set up furtively so as not to be detected. And by the way, it also appears to be a day early. The synoptic Gospels, that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all present the Last Supper as happening on Passover. John comes along writing his Gospel 60 years later and clearly indicates Jesus died on Passover. That Jesus is. John works very hard in his Gospel to present clearly, I believe inspired by the Spirit, Jesus is the Passover Lamb. Later on, Paul will call Him him Christ our Passover. And so John says Jesus died on the Passover. Matthew, Mark, and Luke say, yeah, but the, the Last Supper happened on the Passover. So which one is it? How does it work? Three possible explanations. First of all, one week. That is, Passover, which was a single day, and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which began immediately and ran for seven days following Passover, was all called Passover. At least to the Jews, they would refer to the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover as Passover, Pesach. They just call the whole thing together. It's easier that way. Collectively, all eight days. In fact, you see that in verse 1 up above. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching. So Passover and Unleavened Bread, it was synonymous. And those of you who are not familiar with the, the Jewish feasts... Those two always happened back to back in the spring, Passover first, followed by then seven days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But again, the Jews, even the Scriptures, refer to them uh, together. So perhaps that's the issue, that it's just when Matthew, Mark, and Luke are talking, when John's talking, they're just talking about the overall Passover, and therefore in that broader uh, circumstance, Jesus was there at the Last Supper and, and Sacrifice on the Passover in that generic week. I don't think so. Then why would you tell us, Rick? I'm just taking up time, really. (laughs) Second thing to note, possibility here, two calendars were at play. There were two legitimate calendars used by the Jews in the first century for observing the Passover. And they landed, at least on this year, back-to-back one day and then the next day. That is that there was a Jewish calendar for Passover on one day, and the very next day, another Jewish calendar for Passover... And so Jesus could be at the Last Supper on one Passover and then crucified on the next Passover. Again, pretty easy to work that out. I don't think that's it either. Third possibility. And I would just call this two evenings. Two evenings. Listen to what the Scriptures say. It's always better if you can... To just listen to the simple truth of the Word of God, because God's Word explains things to us, and we don't have to spend all these time on these hours figuring stuff out. It's right here in the Word. Leviticus 23, verse 4, says, "These are the appointed times of the Lord, holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the times appointed for them. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, at twilight, is the Lord's Passover." Very clear. Then on the fifteenth day of the same month, there is the feast of unleavened bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. So you get it? You have Passover at twilight, and then you have feast of unleavened bread the next day. And it's all explained here because the phrase at twilight in the Hebrew is literally between the two evenings. The Jewish calendar day starts in the evening at sundown, and runs to the next evening at sundown. At sundown on Passover, at twilight on the 14th of Nisan, they celebrated the Passover meal. Jews could celebrate the Passover meal, get this, anytime between the two twilights. You could celebrate it that evening. You could celebrate it the next day. And depending on where your tradition lies... Depending on what sect of the Jews you were a part of, you could you could pick a day is no problem, at in between the two evenings. And so what's perfect about this, and you wonder why would the Lord allow any time in that twelve hour period instead of just saying, Do it right here? It allows Jesus to both be at the Last Supper and crucified on Passover. He accomplishes both. Back in Luke twenty two, verse 14, it says, When the hour had come, He reclined at the table and the apostles with Him, and He said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He earnestly desired to eat the Passover with the apostles. But He had to become the Passover for all people, and so God's perfect law allows Jesus to do both. Simple. Simple. Verse 17 going on. Verse 17 tells us, And when He had taken a cup and given thanks, He said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. Four cups of wine. Four cups of wine shared at the Passover Seder, the Passover meal. And again, you Bible students are probably familiar with this. The first cup was called the Cup of Sanctification. It was a cup of wine that the leader of the Passover feast would would hold up and would pass around. That, That cup of wine started off the feast. It was a sanctifying event. They would pray the blessing over the cup of sanctification and they would consecrate the feast to God. And that was it for Jesus. This is the last cup of wine that Jesus would sip. He has yet to sip another cup of wine. Just then, just at that time, he stopped after this. Why do you believe that, Rick? Because he said, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. Why there? Why does Jesus stop then? Why not go for all four cups, you know, like most of us would? You know, all four cups and then stop. Jesus stops after the cup of sanctification, maybe because he has become our sanctification. That there's a, a picture there for us to understand. That He who now consecrated and sanctified the Passover Seder is our sanctification. Hebrews 9 verse 13 says, If the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve The Living God. Remember that when we share communion, as we do weekly here in the bridge. When we share communion together, remember Christ our Passover sanctifies you, He consecrates you, He makes you holy. It's His work that does that, not yours. It's not how you handle yourself through the week. It's what His Spirit is doing in you, in your heart, and upon you. He is the sanctifier. But there are three more cups. None of which, again, were drunk by Jesus. The second and the fourth cup are not mentioned by Luke at all. I'll mention them tonight. The second cup is called the cup of praise. They would have a second cup of wine. Cup of praise. And after the cup of praise and another, another blessing is spoken, hands were washed, and the leader of the Passover now holds up the hamatsi, or the matzah bread. He holds it up. He gives a blessing over the bread. And then He breaks off pieces of the bread and begins to pass them around to everyone seated at the table. And Jesus does that. But says something a little unexpected. Verse 19, And when he taken some bread and given thanks, He broke it. All that's to be expected. And He gave it to them. Again, to be expected. Saying, This is My body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of of me. I can just see Peter scrambling to find a Passover Haggadah and saying, It's not in here. Where did he get that? Is this some new thing Jesus is coming up with? Yeah. Unleavened bread speaks of sanctification in the Bible, but but, but his body? Oh Lord, this is not traditional! I heard somebody say as we came in and we were we were preparing communion communion on a Wednesday night. That's well, not traditional. We don't normally do that, right? What are you doing, Jesus? And I wonder if in that moment any of the apostles immediately recalled what Jesus had said earlier in his ministry. John 6.53, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourself. He who eats My flesh and drinks My blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And so, the matzah is broken, and it's passed out, and it's shared, and Jesus says, it's Me. It's My body. And I would imagine on that Thursday night you could hear a pin drop. As the guys are passing us around, going, Jesus has been weird before. But this is unbelievable. He's doing something here. I, I think, and I can't prove this, I think there was a heaviness on the whole evening. And as Jesus is going to continue on, in, in what John shares, the Thursday night discourse, John 14, 15, and 16, it's some heavy stuff. It's beautiful. It's encouraging, but it's it's weighty. This is it. There is a sense of the end going on among the apostles here. And even in this breaking of bread and his body, and he said he was going up to Jerusalem and they were going to scourge him and they were going to beat him and they were going to crucify him and kill him. And here comes the bread and this is my body. And I wonder where their hearts were. Now... The next thing to happen in the Passover Seder is the third cup. But before the third cup, something happens today that did not happen in Jesus' day. And i got to mention this because I just think it is so cool. And it is called the search for the Afikoman. The afikomen. It, it's at the beginning of the meal. They take three matzahs, three unbroken loaves or, or, or matzah breads, and they put them in what's called a unity bag or sometimes a, a napkin. And it separates into three compartments. So three pieces of matzo bread, first, second, and third, separate compartments put all together. I find that fascinating. Because from a Christian perspective, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. From a Jewish perspective, if you ask a rabbi why, he'll go, "Eh." (laughs) if you ask three rabbis why, you'll get five opinions. (laughs) So it's it's just it's an interesting thing and between the first and the second cup the middle matzah the the second of the three comes out is broken half is put back in and the other half is hidden away somewhere in the house and it's left hidden and they say well it's kind of a tool for our children to keep them engaged in Passover otherwise they would pass out so we want them to have something to look forward to you know something to be involved in here interesting after the memorial part of the meal and the second cup of wine, the kids go on a search for the afikomen and the one who finds it, they get a prize. Rabbis say the afikoman, that piece of matzah, replaces the Passover lamb. And I would tend to agree. Replaces the Passover lamb because we can't kill a lamb today. The Jewish people have no temple, therefore no ability to sacrifice the Paschal lamb, so... So the aphikomen, that replaces that. And interestingly, aphikomen is the only Greek word in an entirely Hebrew ceremony. It's a Greek word that means that which is coming. I mean, and it, just, it just continues to, to get deeper here. It's thought that the aphikomen was perhaps added by Jewish Christians in the first century when Greek was the common language, and they snuck it into the Passover, and it's been there ever since as Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, was taken out, broken, His body wrapped in a napkin and hidden, placed in the grave until He was discovered alive. It's a remarkable parallel. And now in verse 20, continuing on, we come to the next cup. This will be the third cup. In the same way, He took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in My blood. It's the most important cup. Of the Passover meal, it's the cup of redemption. And that's the one Jesus is handing. Not drinking it Himself, mind you. But passing it around to the apostles as a symbol of the redemption that is about to come for them, the redemption that is ours as we look back. When we take communion, that's the cup we're sharing. The cup of redemption. It's the cup that Jesus connects to His own blood. 1 Corinthians 11.26 As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. And so the cup of redemption is a proclamation that we are saved. Jesus instituted it right there. What about the fourth cup? None of the Gospel writers mention that one at all. There is a fourth at the end of the meal. It's the last thing they do is share a final cup of wine and then there's a a hymn that is sung. The fourth cup is called the cup of acceptance or, and I like this better, or it's also called the cup of anticipation. And I think maybe that's the one that Jesus is waiting to share. The cup of anticipation. I am not going to drink of the fruit of the vine again until, he says, until I come in my kingdom. He anticipates what will be a joyous event. A marvelous, wonderful, fantastic event. When we all will share, we will all toast the Lord. Might this cup be raised at the marriage supper of the Lamb? Revelation 19, verse 9. Perhaps, or I think more likely, at the inauguration of The Millennial Kingdom? Can you even imagine that? I think He wants us to. Imagine being there, raising the glass to Jesus in glorious acceptance of the brand new consecrated kingdom. Well, we're not going to drink wine and get like all drunk, are we? A, we'll be in heavenly bodies. B, probably not even the kind of wine we drink today. I won't go into that right now. I could. I won't. But that's not the issue. The wine in terms of the Bible is a picture, a symbol of joy, a symbol of celebration and a symbol for us of the blood of Christ that brings us to the kingdom in the first place. This was not the beginning of the end. This was the beginning of the beginning. The Hebrew writer says in Hebrews 12.24, You have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. And I love that contrast. The blood of Abel and the blood of Jesus Christ and the blood of Jesus is far better. Why? Abel's blood cries out, Vengeance! As he was slain by his brother, the first murder in history. Innocent Abel, out tending the flocks, killed by Cain in a jealous rage. Vengeance! Abel's blood cries out from the ground. Jesus' blood cries out, Redemption. 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 Abel's blood spilled out of a victim. Jesus' blood poured out of a Savior. Abel didn't know what was happening. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. But there's something else here in the new covenant of Jesus' blood. It's something that we still struggle with today. And it is the huge, it is a vast difference between the blood of Abel and the blood of Jesus. Jesus. Abel's blood signifies division between brothers. Jesus' blood signifies unity between brothers and sisters. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread... We who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. And that's so critical. So vital. And I I wish, and I put this on myself as a pastor, and on us as a fellowship, even before I put it on the church at large, I wish that we saw more unity in the church. It'd be simple, really. All we need to do... For unity in the church is proclaim the Lordship of Jesus Christ and the authority of God's Word. We accept the work of His Holy Spirit done, unified. But we take off on so many tangents, primarily because so many places are not in God's Word. But it's unity that God calls us to. And it doesn't matter really what we call ourselves. In fact, I had lunch with another pastor today. We had a great time. And I had a real sense of unity, a real common purpose as we prayed for his church, and prayed for mine, and 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 we we shared that time together. And I was thinking, it doesn't matter. We can call ourselves Baptist. That's okay. Wanna call yourself Baptist? Go ahead. John did. John thought. We can call ourselves Methodist. You can say, well, I'm first repaired. <laughs> you can say I'm a bridger. Whatever. <laughs> If we share the body and blood of Christ, we, Paul said, who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. And in this fellowship, may we practice that. May we practice unity. Under the authority of Jesus and His Word, by the unifying power of His Holy Spirit, may we be a fellowship that practices unity and rejects division. I don't care how much he's burned you. I don't care how much she annoys you. And I'm not talking about husbands and wives. (laughs) Among us as a fellowship, may we be about unity. And understand that every Sunday when we share communion together and any other times we share it, be it in small groups or as we did tonight, you are sharing in the unifying body and blood of Jesus that is given to draw us together and not to push us apart. Well, the apostles apparently still needed to learn this. Beginning tragically with Judas. Jesus says in verse 21, "...but behold, the hand of the one betraying Me is with Mine on the table. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom He is betrayed." And they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who is going to do this thing. Translation. Finger pointing. Now we see in other Gospels, there's them saying, is it me? Is it me? Is it me? But you know, somebody had to say, is it (laughs) him? You know? Who else around the table? And what we see here in the first breaking of this fellowship is Judas. He's the first one to divide out, although his heart's been gone for a long time. Matthew Henry writes, It is hard to say whether more mischief is done to Christ's kingdom by the power and policy of its open enemies, or by the treachery and self-seeking of its pretended friends. Nay, without the latter, its enemies could not gain their point as they do, which is a good point. The enemies of Christ could not take down the church unless the church opened its doors and unless there were relationships working their way into the church that could cause it to fall. I don't know if you heard, and I'm not going to say his name, it's not important right now other than to say... Please pray for him. God knows who he is. But there's a pastor of a mega church who fell this last week. I say fell. He confessed a moral failing. This is a pastor that I know, that I respect highly, that I have learned from. But I mention this not because of the failing. Any human being is capable of it. I am so impressed with his church right now. Because A... There's no info on the internet about this. Other than, yes, he stepped down for moral issues and he's going to focus on his relationship with the Lord and his family. That's it. You're not hearing anything else. I'm sure the press is digging because the press has gone after this guy before. But what I'm seeing here, and and there's there's a disclaimer on the church's website that says our pastoral staff is... Taking charge of things, doing you know, covering all all that needs to be covered in the preaching and teaching, and we are providing counseling for him and the family, and we are working toward forgiveness, restoration. I mean, the whole nine yards. I sat there, and read that, went, that's that's unity in the body. That's how the church is supposed to work. Not kick them out quick as we can, but seek to restore and seek healing. And when the church functions that way, there's not a whole lot of room for the enemies to get in and divide. Well, Judas, again, he'd already chosen to divide himself out. And by the way, Jesus' words underscore whose final responsibility Judas's actions were. Judas's. They were his. Responsibility. They were His choice. Listen again. Jesus says, The hand of the one betraying Me is with Mine on the table. Indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. Hey, that's been planned from the foundations of the earth. But woe to that man by whom He is betrayed. He made His choice. And He is judged by that choice. Well, while others are trying to figure it out, you know, who's going to betray Jesus? Who's the guy? And they're talking amongst themselves. Judas just slips out. No one even notices, really. John says some supposed that perhaps he was going to get supplies or going to get something Jesus needed. No one even thought about it, but he slips out. And suddenly, the divisive talk takes a completely different turn at the table. And there also arose, or there arose also, a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest.
1: Ha, 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 Really? I mean the question of most vile
0: betrayer immediately leads to most valuable player.
1: <laughs>
0: From one to the other like that, they're like, Well am I gonna be tram? Are you gonna be tram? Who's a betrayer? Well I actually probably couldn't be tram because I'm actually one of his favorites anyway, so you know I'm kind of one of the top dogs and I'm I'm one of the greatest. So clearly it's not me. And off they go, and listen, both betrayers and most valuable players harm
1: fellowship. Both do it.